0: Hey everyone, this is the Benips and Sips podcast uh, featuring me, myself, uh, Dr. Jeremy Boyd, and uh, Dr. Brandon Cruz. Uh, Today we're going to be talking uh, about uh, whether you're a lazy physical therapist or not. I know this is going to be a little bit controversial. Uh, Before I get and stir up too many people's feathers, let me uh, pass it off to my partner in crime. Brandon, how's it going?
1: Going well, good. I like controversy. Uh, I think we need to get some people fired up here. Um, and maybe, you know, bring some points up that will hopefully let them, you know, just reflect and question, uh, you know, what, I guess, what camp they want to go into. Unfortunately, I, this profession is, is devising into to camps and is devising those camps keep growing. I, I feel like, um, instead of being able to understand and, uh, use kind of all the aspects that we have, uh, available to us. So, I like that title. I think we're going to make that the, the headline here. But I uh, just finished a, a day's work. Um, so I'm at the office still. I have my nice mug. Oh, I'm drinking my whiskey. I coffee mugs because that's all I have in the clinic. But this was a, given by an intern of mine. So I love the, the vertebra here. I just finished off my Buchanan's bottle. Uh, so on to the next one. I, I'm narrowing down in a few bottles here. So uh, that's a good thing. What do you got today, uh, Jer? Uh well you made the uh,
0: the color pick uh there I'm drinking uh evil genius uh sorry not sorry I just picked it up on the way to uh, way home tonight uh evil genius uh that's where we had uh, the uh, welcome party for my wedding if you remember yes, that yes. uh I half remember it um Oops. But this one's a peach IPA, um, so it's actually I was a little skeptical about it, but uh, it's got it's actually delicious. It's got Zaka, Mosaic and Simcoe. I, th- I don't know why, but things have Simcoe hops in it. Um, I've always liked it, but it's a real good combination of peach and uh, that IPA. So, drinking um, out of the Gla- Glass Town Brewing Cup, which I talked about last episode. So they're in Millville. Um, but yeah, really good. And if I make it, if it's a really good episode, I'm going to hit my other evil genius of There's No Crying in Baseball. By far, of all the brews oh, I've been to, they are the best names, hands down, and, and Top Beer, too. But
1: uh, I wish you would have given them names. I would have picked that one.
0: You give me uh, color. I, mean, to pick. I give you color. I just wanted to keep it simple, dude. Um, you know, it's okay. I'm going to have it later because we're, a, me and Brandon have been talking for a little bit, and uh, I'm very, Pretty much two sips away from my first cup here. And uh we had a little clinical rant before. So um, but let's get into the into the meat of things.
1: Uh real quick though, Jared, lean back so everyone can see your oh, like, near yeah. your sporting. Oh
0: you yeah.
1: Nip and sip shirt. Yeah. We, we actually a had a made uh, a bit ago, but we need we we've slacked on on getting them out there. But yeah. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you, you threw it on for the podcast of course uh, let's give credit to uh where it's due your friend um scott made scott that Fowl. for us uh drafted yeah. it up and made it so uh, big thank you to scott for uh being the, the brains behind that one
0: yeah he's the uh, he's a logo master if anyone ever needs one uh, but yeah let's uh let's roll right into it um what's your thoughts brandon uh do you think uh i mean do you think people are pts are lazy now uh, I, I, you know, I, if I look at it, I keep trying to, I don't know why. I mean, for a while, I think where I used to work was, like, try not to throw other, you know, our local PT practices under a bus or anything like that. I don't try and throw the profession under the bus, even if they just did pretty much passive stuff all day. Um, but be, even beyond that, I think, you know, we all know the people that throw passive you know modalities heat stem ice ultrasound yeah they're they're pretty lazy or not really putting much effort into it but even if you're not doing those sort of things i think there's a degree of laziness out there um and uh yeah
1: i don't i don't know if it's uh if it's lazy or not but i think that pendulum has swung too far um and, you know, everyone has a voice now in, in 2020, the Me Too movement. Everyone feels like they can say whatever they want. So uh, this is our rant and this is, this is my rant taking a stance on the other side because, um, frankly, I don't think there are enough people doing so, at least on the lower ends, other than if you go to these conferences. Obviously, you and I go to these conferences, AOMT and, and things of that nature, uh, and we got fired up. Uh, but we also see the detriment it's doing – to really the newer grads out there, um, yeah. the people who follow, get their knowledge from social media, the people who follow these, uh, quote unquote, experts, because they have a bunch of followers for saying outlandish shit or whatever the hell they do. Uh, and they they preach, you know, don't touch a patient. And I'm just going to segue here into to this comment. I'll, I'll show it later for you guys. Actually, I had it ready. Where did it go? Um, of just what some physical therapists say and, uh, give me one second, guys. I, I lost it here. So this, I came from a conference.
0: <laughs> was that yeah. AMP?
1: Yes, this was AMP in actually 2015, actual statements from TT. So I found it. I apologize, guys. Thanks for being with me. Uh, statement number one, you should not use manipulation in the lumbar spine or for low back pain as it takes the locus of control away from the patient. All right, may maybe be true, may not be true. All pain is in the brain, so performing manual interventions is counterproductive. We'll dive into that. And if you're using dry needling, that's akin to assaulting the patient. So, I mean, we don't really have to dive into the dry needling uh, stuff right now, but manipulating uh, low back pain as it takes away control from the patient. How? Uh, I think we've gotten away... Uh, and and I'm I'm saying this uh, uh, I guess broad broad term here. But if if you listen listening to this um, and you take offense to it, it's probably you. Uh, we've gotten away from it because we want to just educate the patient. We want to do pain science, and for some reason, pain science has been interpreted as uh, just educating the patient, um, telling them that it is in their brain. Their pain is in the brain. Tell them that if um, you know they do X, Y, and Z, sleep more stop stressing and things like that, they'll be better. We have people in these camps. Um, oh, no, I probably can't say I don't want to get charged for blasphemy or anything, but um, these breathing groups, uh, you'll know who I'm talking about. We breathe in out of a, a bag um, where you just feel if the patient sleeps and positions correctly and reduces stress, they'll be better. Uh, we have the ability to, you know, impact our patients. And we need to not just slide on one one area of what we can do. And we've talked about this before on some podcasts where we're able to, you know, if you hone your skills, be able to diagnose as good or if not better than a physician because we have more time. Um, we can dry needle. That's that's a tool that is used that's similar to another profession. Um, we can perform exercises. We can perform patient education. We can perform uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, there are so many – um, different things that we are equipped with. But we have therapists that just want to do one thing, which is fine. You get really good at one thing. But you're, to say to say that manual therapy is not productive or is counterproductive, uh, you're, you're shortchanging yourself and you're shortchanging the patient and you're shortchanging any followers you have out there. And I think that's where the, the quote-unquote laziness comes from. And it comes from, it's easier to just talk to a patient than to sit and, and learn clinical decision-making, learn how to develop your hands, to learn how to use your manual skills as interventions and assessments, learn how to use manual therapy as uh, a, a means to an end. Um, and Jeremy and I both deal with orthopedic and, and weekend warriors and athletic population where manual therapy for us is a means to an end. We do it and we get our patients moving. So we cover both sides of that spectrum. And I think we part of the reason why I want this podcast is we want to bring people from both ends into the middle um, a little bit more uh, so you can, you know, utilize tools at your disposal your, uh, or dispense here and um, help your patients a little more.
0: Absolutely. And um,
1: what are your thoughts, uh, Jared?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> That's the real beauty of this profession. I, and I <laughs> always say, you know, I get, I, I, my practice is in a college town, so I get shatterers, interns, uh, like or I get an email a um, and a lot of them ask me, you know, is it worth it? You know, is it, you know, something you enjoy and everything like that? And I do, I enjoy, I love this job every day of the week. When I, I can go in, minus the bullshit of paperwork, uh, I can work a, uh, you know, I've done it work day, you know, 14, 15 hour day. And it doesn't feel like work. It's just enjoyment to me. Um, and it, it really is a beautiful profession. And I think our profession's the most unique of the healthcare, or whether we allied healthcare professionals, or I don't know what the hell, I don't even know what the hell that is, the allied healthcare care but apparently that's what yeah, we are I
1: put, I was like, like, whatever it is. What it is. Yeah. It
0: was um, where we do have that ability to, in the time for most of us, you know, there are some, I guess, higher volume clinics or some places that limit uh, timing with clients to 15 to 30 minutes. Um, but we have that ability to do a little bit of everything of education which you know, you look at your clinical practice guidelines. You know that JSPT releases is always high up on the list, and I fully agree with. Um, you know, exercise. Uh, you know, prescribing and figuring out the the exact exercises they need to do, diagnosing and assessing. Just like you said, better than most physicians. If you look at our training, and then if you get any postdoctorate training, is more than any other.
1: I think I have this ready and that's cut you oh, yeah, no,
0: keep going uh, more than most medical professionals besides your specialized orthopedic surgeons. Um, we also, and that's a time thing too. A lot of our surgeons. Yeah. Yeah. They might've gotten years of residency training and fellowship training for themselves. Um, but it's a time thing, you know, most of the time they're in there and they have to, what we see in an hour Um, they have to see, you know, five, 10 clients and bang them in and out. We have the time to do all these sort of things. Um, we have the time to, you know, also throw in hands-on therapy. Um, you know, it's something that's been around for centuries. There's certain things that last the test of time and some degrees of manual therapy, have uh, you know made it throughout the entire time we've been alive uh, as a species? Uh, whether it's you know you know manipulations or mobilizations, soft tissue, or those sort of things, acupuncture and slash dry needling. Um, we are the one profession that can combine all these things together, um, and I think we're really shooting ourselves in the foot. Uh, taking away one of our bigger components or one of like a, I'd say I'd split it up into three things, exercises and neuromuscular balance, whatever you want to describe as that education. And then, um, you know, manual therapy and a lot of us are saying, Hey, screw, screw one third of it. Let's just do exercise and um, you know, education. We're no better than an excellent strength coach that can read the same articles we can read. Um, can see some movement breakdowns probably better than most of us Um, and, you know, make the right exercise selection. What can we do more? Yeah, they can, you know, diagnose specific specific conditions, sure. Yeah, but they can say, hey, this is hurting you. All right, let's modify things. But we can, you know, add that third component that few professions either have the skill for or the time for. And we're doing it because, a lot of, you know, as you were saying, was mostly students and entry levels or, you know, this is a social media who's the most popular influencer kind of nation. We follow these people that, um, you know, their business is what they can get online and what they can get on social media. And, um, you know, what DMs they can get and what people can message them. And obviously, you know, good, you know, good for them, you know, you know, props to them that they can be so large and, you know, you know, be to the masses. But obviously their business is if they had something that needed some sort of manual techniques or this or sort of that, they can't do that over the, over the phone or over DMs or those sort of things. So it makes sense for them to, something that they can't have a business in and say it's not needed Uh, so it's a real shame that that's the case so um, I'm gonna get off my high horse because I can talk about this all day
1: so there's a uh, I won't mention the name here but there's a post here saying use of manual therapy it gets them better and better is crossed out and it says coming back for more and I couldn't say that. that's probably further from the truth. Maybe you have some patients who are like that, but I think that's going to be anywhere with those patients who just want to keep coming back unless you put a stop to it and educate them. But I think that's on you, the provider to educate the patient. Hey, we've gotten you to a point where you could self-manage this and X, Y, and Z. That's a different conversation, but I couldn't tell you the amount of times I've had patients come in one or two times and you know, I manipulate them. We do a couple of exercises. I educate them and I never hear from them again. And I'm like, oh, whatever happened to this patient? I give them a call. They pick up and they're like, hey, how's it going? Uh, and, you know, it's just like, hey, how you doing? I haven't heard from you. And they're like, oh, I've been completely fine since I last saw you. I was going to call you, but I forgot and blah, blah, blah. Um, you could say, you can make the argument that they're just being nice, but chances are they wouldn't have picked up the phone and had that conversation with me uh, no. if they were ducking and dodging me because cause I did something wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. So the fact that I've been able to get them back, I mean, people know when they're better and, and they don't need you anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a selling point. Now, if you want to make it a business where you yourself are telling the patient that you need to come here because you need manual therapy or you need my services, that, that is a business model. And that's something different uh, that goes beyond the clinical skill of, of what we're doing. Um, I'll throw it back at you real quick. And then I want to touch you upon these articles that, that, you what you said kind of spurred my mind i have him up here on the screen share
0: yeah yeah. i mean if you're ready for it i mean i agree with you and and all that Um,
1: keep talking no and even in the sense
0: where you get people or it's just like yeah you do a couple quick techniques i think in that particular post was like oh manual therapy only works on people who are going to get better i'm like you don't know that um yes it works on the acute uh, acute clients and those sort of things. But if you didn't manage them right, that acute person becomes chronic. If you didn't do anything like, all right, imagine coming into a PT practice and you got a fucking wicked case of uh, acute low back pain and you're like, all right, research says this or I doubt they even say that. They're like, okay, you're going to be fine. You know, do these sort of exercises. But what if every motion fucking hurts? Um, that's a case with a lot of acute low back pain. Um, fucking definitely for the case for any cervical acute pain. Uh, being that I've been there before and I've been locked up and like, I can't fucking move my goddamn neck and looking like a jackass turning my whole body around just to see huh. people. Yeah. It's fucking annoying. Um, and just getting all oh, here, try some of these exercises. Okay. Um, even me as a therapist, I've done that to myself and yeah, maybe it help a little bit, but God damn, I'm still in a lot of fucking pain. Oh, well you're going to be fine. I'm educating you. Um, and I'm dude, I fucking sip the Kool-Aid of pain science like nobody else. And you know, I've talked to people and, you know, given them the research or like, you know, talk about their stressors and everything like that. Um, but just being given those two options, and leaving i can not even imagine leaving an eval like that it's like oh wow well he said i'm gonna be fine but i feel like absolute shit the exercises were too painful to do because everything hurts um yeah i guess i'll come back and how much are we accounting for those people that drop off um because they're like, i didn't get anything fucking done in that first session, but that's just going to be a fucking rant on my part. I'm no, no, going.
1: you bring it. We're we're going to rant today because you bring up some great points. Where what like those therapists? These therapists that don't want to touch the patient, don't have the skill set, don't have the knowledge, or too ignorant to realize it. What are you going to do with the patient? Are you just really going to have them come in, say, educate them? You'll be fine. Do these breathing exercise or, or this exercise, and uh, I'll see you in a week. Because all you did there, which is a huge variable that's thrown against manual therapy, but I'll throw it against the other side, is time. How often is time a factor in healing? Where, yeah, you give an acute low back pain a couple weeks, and, yeah, that acuteness is gone. They still have some pain, but they can move a little better. That's just the course of time that happens. Like, how about you expedite that, you know, from three weeks down to a couple days. I actually had a kid the other day come in. Uh, college kid cute little back pain messing up uh, lifting saw him and then he did not come in Monday because he had some school work I talked to his mom uh, because she came in and he was like yeah his back's fine Like that was it one session I don't even need to see him that was it is it maybe a little stiff? Could it be? Possibly. But he's able to do carry on with his day where he would call me the day before saying, I need to come to you because he couldn't move. Like you said, every direction mm-hmm. hurt him. Got him in, spent half an hour with him, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we moved on. But, all right, enough of that. Let me nah, – um, um, yeah. we, we both have stories for, for days on this. Yeah, it can go um, for days.
0: But go
1: so, ahead. I'm still on screen share, right? Cool. Yeah, it's all you you. Um, Alright, so this article we're talking about who knows more in, uh, right, us or or uh, physicians. Other medical providers. Right. So this is a study done by John Childs. Uh, and there's Which there's I think they more.
0: should redo. I mean it's from two thousand five. I be Yeah. I would,
1: I would love, love it if they redo it. it.
0: And especially I don't, if they no, included like
1: the they don't computer. have fellows in here. No, that's why I'm saying
0: it's, you know, it's 2005.
1: yeah. So I just screenshotted the picture that's in this article and it goes into it. But I mean, when you look at who knows more, you have your orthopedics, which, and this is knows more in terms of like anatomy and how to manage these cases. All right. And I'm going to question managing cases here, because if your answer to managing cases is surgery, not every case needs a surgery. So I'm sure we could probably split that aspect in the surgery down or in the article down a little bit more but aside from orthopedics pts especially board certified ones know more students know more so if you have a a general practitioner or a gynecologist or an intern like you know more than them you as a dpt intern know more than them this is always a hot topic these DPTs who come out and they don't want to call themselves doctors because the guy next to them is like 45 and he has their masters or she has her masters and they feel bad because that person has more experience than them than not. And that's a different conversation because some of these um, DPTs are a little too arrogant. Uh, going back to that slide we had last, Jeremy, if you could pull that up in a second, that expert and knowledge one. Yeah. Um, but. You're over here, a DPT student. You know a good amount of stuff and how to manage some stuff. Are you where you need to be? Are you where are, are you the final product as a student or a new grad? No, but you're pretty far along, especially compared to to other um, professions. So uh, we were talking about that. I just wanted to show that that there is some some research there done in that, and that's a, it's a favorite, one of my favorite studies.
0: Yeah, that's, and again, I think it'd be great if they. Obviously we're biased if they throw in that you know more advanced things. Maybe you get like uh yeah, doctors of science or your fellows and those sort of things. Um let's see where where we're we at on the same sort of let me, let me levels. Of um I'm trying to find that.
1: Yeah. Um all right, I'll I'll keep uh I'll keep talking then. I have I have a lot of articles oh, on get, this where, where we need to go as a profession. Um, and it really comes down to do you want to take an hour and read a fucking article um, to change your thought process. And this is by Timothy Noteboom oh, you got it. Um, and Josh Cleland. I mean, some, some really awesome people in our profession here. Uh, That's a. Can I get uh, on another quick rant? Yeah. Yeah. Actually. Cause I pulled up Just a real one. quick but rant. Like you, the the, the,
0: <laughs> I mean, again, Kudos to these guys because they can get 500 fucking thousand followers and great, good for their business and all that sort of stuff. But they claim they're researchers and stuff like that. If you look at any of them, none of them are involved in any fucking research, really. Um, The one person you mentioned, he was involved in one fucking study and that was it. Um, And if you're looking at the real people like Cleland, Flynn, Childs, uh, Whitman, all these sort of people, they're fucking in the research all the time, in all the you know most important articles and those sort of things. And then you know what's a, another big thing is looking at the ones that also, like, essentially trash themselves years like before. Like, if you look at Peter Sullivan and that sort of stuff, he was yeah. a core guy, and you know a couple years later, from him constantly researching things, figure out he's like, oh shit, I fucked up. Uh, cook. I uh, was involved in so many of the CPRs. And then a couple of years later, he's like, you know what? Maybe these weren't the best idea. That's a sign of a real good researcher. Um, and that's what you're yeah. huh? clinician or a clinician. Yeah. And, but you will not see them on big social media platforms or those sort of things. Cause they're fucking stuck in the research actually doing shit because that takes hours and days and times. And they got conferences and those sort of things and presenting. And we're hanging our hat on Pearson It was like, Oh yeah, he's got great content and he made these couple of cool graphs and he puts up uh, his tweet before and it looks kind of uh, profound and that was it. So I just say, you know, look for those individuals that are actually involved in the research. Like, all right. Yeah. Kevin Wilk and Mike Reynolds and ACLs and, you know, post-op shoulders. Those guys are involved in the research. So maybe we should actually, you know, Listen to what they have to say, um, versus a lot of these other ones. It's so, gonna be too yeah, good. Great, great
1: point. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, they're, they're the humble ones, and uh, that's a great point you said. How they've gone back and they've admitted that maybe not they were wrong, but that they've moved on. I think that's the bigger thing that they've moved on from their original thought process or hypothesis or claim or, or whatever. Uh, if you're a clinician and you're still doing what you did five years ago or even last year, really. Um, and haven 't evolved um, because you know what you do works, yeah, what you do works, but you don 't know if something else works better um, so I mean constantly challenge yourself to uh, to be better there, and hopefully we 're able to apply a platform where we 're passing along this stuff we we 've read it Jeremy and I aren 't at the point where we 've done these research things um, other than maybe some case studies and, and presentations but um, you know, we're not at this level, um, but we're, we're at least passing it along. But this, this is, uh, this is part one. This was the lead author was Cleland in this one, but same group of people. Uh, this was part one. I, by mistake, I pulled up part two and let me pull this up on the screen for you guys. Here we go. So... Just to read real quick, I love this paragraph right here. Many physical therapists believe that practicing evidence-based practice requires too much time for the busy clinician. And I think, Jeremy, you touched upon uh, those people in the busy clinics. But in reality, the purpose of evidence-based practice is to approve the efficiency in clinical decision-making to assist clinicians mm-hmm. in selecting and applying interventions that will maximize positive patient outcomes and obviously do it faster. The goal is to treat your patients better and faster. So maybe, maybe you have more time to do your notes and you don't have to bring your notes home because treating that tennis elbow instead of massaging it and doing, I don't even know what people do for that shit anymore. Instead of just treating the neck and some neuroglides, and that takes five minutes. Now you can have the patient make better progress or just chalking it up to, Oh, it's a tendon. It's, it needs to be realigned and you have to do a lot of eccentrics, uh, like move beyond that thought process. Um, And that's the goal of evidence-based practice, except it takes some upfront time to learn it. But once you learn it, it's like a snowball. It's all downhill. Um, Piggybacking off of this one, since we're on evidence-based practice, let me pull up. Where is he? There we go. This is another favorite one of mine. uh, Philip Sizer. Evidence-based practice was originally developed to increase use of epidemiology and statistics in a clinician's uh, practice. It was never intended to de-emphasize the clinician's experience or patient biology beliefs and values. That's another thing I think we have lost is the combination and learning how to blend evidence with your skill set or um, knowledge as a uh, clinician as well as the patient's values so you know that's gonna ebb and flow and that's gonna you know go across a spectrum for each patient and you need to learn and discern uh, when to use a hands-off approach when you can when you can be lazy quote-unquote and it's okay and when you maybe need to do a little less talking and listen and do more listening and, or maybe do some manual therapy, uh, to calm some things down. If, especially if that's the patient's expectation is to have, they're coming to you for help. They're expecting you to put their hands on them, meet them halfway.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I always ask is what, you know, I think I got this from Bill, uh, Bill Egan, um, was, you know, what do you feel like, what do you feel like will make you better? Is there anything even outside the scope of physical therapy, Um, and you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, I think I just need this to be stretched or I need a good crack. And I always get super happy at those moments, but "But they stretched or something needs to be kind of pushed or whatever. I'm like, okay, so they're saying their brain is perceiving their subconscious and subconscious mind saying, oh, all right, um, something needs to be done in X, Y, Z area. So, um whether it's a placebo effect of manual therapy or not, uh, when something like that is happening, you know, you got to take advantage of it. Um, But uh, yeah, that's a good example of it. But uh, what you're talking about, like with uh, a, it's a good example of um, in that study that you brought up before was, um, you know, taking away, you know, if you're falling into a tribe or getting stuck to one way and you're, you know, you're kind of ignoring some things. Uh, Ernie Gamble, who was um, of the company that I I worked for, awesome, awesome clinician, uh, a fellow himself. He said he was, he was, he had a fellow in training who was McKenzie certified. So nothing, you know, McKenzie has its place and stuff like that, but she uh, sipped the Kool-Aid too much of, of McKenzie I don't know if it was acute or subacute low back pain or something like that, but kept, you know, it was, I think it was an older lady for some odd reason, and mm-hmm. just kept trying to run her through the McKenzie protocol, do extensions. And the whole, like, looking at the um, low back pain treatment based classification, true. he said it screened manipulation or mobilization. And she, like, the, the fellow and trained did not do it. And he gave her opportunity and those sort of things, and then like she had no, no improvements with what the the student or the fellow in training was doing, and until he had to move in because obviously this was in our clinic and stuff like that, and he did the whatever technique I don't know what he did, um, it was some sort of manual therapy, and huge difference. She was like felt amazingly better, um, so that's you know something not to get stuck in a tribe um, tribes or I forget what you said there, Brandon, but um,
1: yeah, I can't remember right now.
0: Groups or whatever it may be, but camps, camps, uh, camps, camps. camps. Uh, my mentor used to say tribes, uh, camps, tribes, whatever it may be. Um, and, you know, it's good to you know be diverse with these sort of things, but I see that you brought up the low back pain uh, subgroups there. Yeah.
1: And all this is, is a starting point. It's not to say I don't do this. There are people who have scream manipulation and they don't respond to it. And I, I uh, know that's not going to respond to it. And I maybe have to use this. There's people who may you know, scream specific exercises and I know they'll do better with manipulation. Or maybe I need to get them moving first and get things calmed down wait a day or two because they're too acute and, and get them over. I mean, this should be a, just a jump off point in a, a starting point those people mm-hmm. who, who take and, and you know hopefully we'll get in trouble here but we're talking about McKenzie I mean you take this long series to learn one school of thought and at least when it comes to, to this the treatment-based classification which by the way it's been updated um, and it takes a lot more into uh, account and it's not just this this four quadrant here but let's just for simplicity purposes you, you just spend, I don't know how many courses and thousands of dollars learning one thing and it's only to deal with people with this. Oh. Um, but anyway. And what that. happens
0: if you get all four?
1: <laughs> I, I've yeah, had that so with a Stanton, client. Stanton had an article on that. Stanton, and in, uh, I believe it was 2012 where it's like you may have people who have two or three of these. Yep. At which point you have to figure out which is the low hanging fruit, which is the, the main driver. And that may be trial and error. That may be obviously doing a thorough evaluation and assessment and seeing which one you think they'll respond best to and then do one. Um, And then you you chip away. It's like an onion. You peel away different onions. So maybe that first layer is a manipulation. Maybe a second layer, actually maybe a first layer is extensions. You calm it down. Then you do a manipulation. Then you do some motor control stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, but it
0: should always be evolving, you know,
1: um, who, who, uh, I'm going to butcher this. Cam said this basically how every time you're treating a patient, you should reassess them basically because mm-hmm. it's a different case.
0: Yep.
1: Um, and yeah, that may be taken to extreme, but if you're, if you're, let's say three sessions, five sessions in, and you're doing the same thing you did session one, well, that patient hopefully is still not presenting the way they, if you did your job right, the way they did in that initial assessment. So you Mm -hmm. need to evolve your treatment pattern literally every session, at least every session, if not multiple times within a session, because every time you do something, hopefully they're changing. And now you have Mm -hmm. to address a new impairment or a new limitation or whatever the case may be. So that needs to happen all the time. Not just, Oh, okay. That's good. Just uh, do the other exercise uh, 10 times. Like it it needs to, it should be more than that. Um, I
0: agree. That that
1: requires you to think.
0: I, like in my clinic and stuff, it must drive my students. We don't have aids or anything like that um, up a wall as they're, sometimes I'll like throw them on their bus. I'm like, all right, patient's gonna, the next patient's gonna come in I want you to try and develop something. And we don't have any flow sheets or anything like that. I tell my students not to look at, you know, the previous flow sheet or exercise because I'm like, you should base things off of what they say that day coming in, um, big reason why, I, you know, stop going crazy with like, you know, f- you know, functional surveys and that sort of stuff. Cause I, I'm asking right there and then what they still have a problem with. And I'm like, my brain do whatever freaking algorithms are up there to f- break it down and see what I need to test, assess and develop a plan for, um, not, not easy for obviously students and those sort of things. Um, but, that's how it should be. It's just constantly evolving. It literally evolves sometimes within the session. Like I'm already starting to go, and they do something funny on exercise, or they report something, and you got to be able to pivot and you know change things up. So, um, but yeah, that's just what I do. So I can so go.
1: Let's give a solution here, chair, because we we're um, you know taking shots at, at at people and maybe their practice patterns or their beliefs. But how how do we integrate? Um, you know, both, both things here, uh, both sides of the coin and I'm, I'm going to dive into some research on low. I have some few things and then, uh, you piggyback off if you don't mind here, uh, just cause I have these ready, uh, Adrian Lowe and, and Domer Hall have done studies on a homunculus and mapping and cortical changes. Um, and there's something called smudging. And if you haven't, there's a video you can watch uh, from, I believe it's Butler, right? From the Neo group, but no, no, mm-hmm. N, NIO. Group. Mark
0: Butler.
1: Um, David Butler. David, David Butler. Butler. Um, talk about smudging. But basically mapping in the homunculus changes every 15 minutes. Um, there's a plastic shift and, and that's called smudging. Um, Mosley did a study called Can't Find It in 2008, and it was these patients with low back pain and he took a quadrant. Let me find this article. I have it right here. Let me pull it up for you guys.
0: Um, and yeah, the, all these sort of things with like, Oh, pain science this encourage and those sort of things. This is coming from these guys, you know, mostly low Butler. Um, but none of them ever say not to do any hands-on therapy. Actually, they all do pretty sure low still teaches, Manipulations and dry needling.
1: Yeah, dry needling. Um, yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, th- this article by Mosley, I can't find distorted image, tactile dysfunction in patients with chronic low back pain. And they put markers, they literally put quadrants, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine across. And they would uh, tap a point and ask patients to tell them what area of the back that they were in. And they couldn't do it, the ones with chronic low back pain. The part of the study was they went in, and if you stimulate that area in quadrant one, two, or three, um, over some time, literally within minutes, because plasticity and the smudging changes every 15 minutes, um, they were able to get positive changes and, and determine what section they're in. So I think there's a picture here of what they did. Here we go. So Jay, you see that? Good. Yep, 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 yep. So they did this one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They went in, uh, those quadrants, and then they they stimulated that area with tactile cueing, and afterwards the patient was able to do it, um, determine it. Adrian Lowe then took this study or this concept a step further. With, let me find this other study. Nope, that was not it. I want to keep these articles in line while you're doing this. There we go. All right. He then took that concept a step further with this guy. The effect of manual therapy and neuroplasticity and chronic low back pain and basically mobilized people in those segments, therefore utilizing manual therapy and pain science principles and, and getting people better. I believe uh, I was at a lecture with him and he talked about even mobilizing They're telling the patient, I'm on L1 and mobilizing it. Understand what that feels like. I'm on L2, mobilizing it. Understand what that feels like. I'm on L3, all the way down. And then as he goes and mobilizes, he asks the patient, what segment am I on? And and changes it. Now you're getting that patient involved actively in a passive treatment or modality. How do you blend these two together? And that comes from these two articles here um, that I was talking about. One article uh, piggyback off of another. Um, So like Jeremy was saying, these are pain studies about pain science and utilizing manual therapy and then following it up with some type of exercises. Um, With that, their forward flexion also improved. That's this study where they looked here you go. One, two, three. They tactically cued them. They had, they did a before and after of a toe touch and their toe touch improved. I think it was uh, three inches. um, If I'm not mistaken. But whatever it was, it was significant. Um it was a significant measure measurement. All he did was tactilely the cue the patient um, with uh in, in this this uh this map here. So I mean that's how you really tie it all together. Not for my rank. Jerry, what what do you got? No, I mean, or, I mean you, you, you,
0: yeah, he yeah. summed it up um pretty nicely and um I know in previous you know, podcasts, I say, you know, you know, test it out. Don't just believe, you know, what you see on, you know, on social media and those sort of things. I know all you students have gotten some form of uh, manual therapy. Um, So don't be afraid to test it out, you know, and uh, obviously when it comes to research, we just presented tons of research to you at this point. Um, So we're equally evidence-based. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that's a good way to tie things together. And, um, you know, I think, you know, if you use what we previously talked about, those test retest principles, um, you'll have a more grand effect, um, using probably some sort of manual therapies. And believe me, I want to be as efficient as possible. I want to do as least amount of work, get my clients better, quicker, faster, uh, than anyone. um, and just over the years, it's you know, there's still a component of manual therapy giving me a gateway to make things better faster. So that's just me, though. Uh, probably also Brandon and a yep. lot of their PTs, but yeah, you know, keep that door open. But uh, yeah, Brandon, any other closing you know, thoughts? Well,
1: uh, we'll wrap up with that. I think I talked enough uh, in today's uh, sweet uh, rant today. I had the had the research ready and queued up, so we're good. So it
0: was good. Um, all right then. Um, hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully opened some doors for you guys. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or arguments based off of what we said, please feel free to reach out to us. We're at Manips and Sips on Facebook and Instagram. I'm at the Decent Doctor. Uh, you can also reach out to my business business at Traffic the Therapeutics. Brandon's at uh, Think Like a Fellow. And at Pursue PT now. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening in, everyone, or watching us. And uh, cheers, everyone. Cheers, guys. Take care.